So we come to chapter 14, and let's go ahead and read it. Now, hold, you got to hold with me here. There's a lot of words and a lot of names in here, okay? I'm going to do my best. But this is like one of the classic, like, name passages in the Bible where every time you read it out loud, you're like, okay, how's it going to go? So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 14. It goes, says this, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of El- uh, Elasar, Chedorlomar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sod- Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and king and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. By the way, if anybody's about to have some children or wants names to offer to your, your future grandkids, great ones in there. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlomar, and the thirteenth they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlomar and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuzim, in Ham, and Enim, in Shaveh, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hezezon, Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains, and they took that's the other kings, all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Like, okay, why are we telling this story right now? For this. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. By the way, yeah, like when I was reading there, like it felt like I was reading in Lord of the Rings, like a fantasy novel. You know, good fantasy writers, actually, if you pay attention, they borrow from the Old Testament a lot because the names feel quite fantastical to us. Here's the setup for our story. All of that was like, wow, it's a lot of history. There's this ongoing war between these five kings who are in the Jordan River Valley along the Jordan River. Remember, that's where Lot went to live in the last chapter. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And there's four kings from the east over near Babylon. And they come over and they have these ongoing conflicts. And eventually there's this war and the four kings come over and they destroy the armies of the five kings. They, they rout them and they take all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. And guess who was living in Sodom? Lot. That's the connection to our story here. Lot and all his family is taken away. Lot is swept up in the conflict between the kings of the east and the kings of the Jordan River the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, among others. So Lot is captured. We just read all of those verses. He's taken with all his possessions and his family. As a side note, do you notice who is Lot part of? It's part of Abram's family. God had promised Abram that he would take care of him, that he would lead him, that he would bless those who bless him, and he would curse those who curse him. Lot is part of his family. But did Lot escape the problems of the world around him? He did not. Now, part of it's Lot's own fault. Where was he living? Sodom. But Lot is swept up in this. He doesn't get to escape it. 
But let's read verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, his nephew Lot, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobath, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and people. So what does Abram do? As soon as he hears about Lot being taken away, captured, he gets all his household together. Now, someone tell me, mentally, you don't have to yell it out, kids, is 300 people really that many people? Well, some of you might say, yeah, that's a lot. But remember... We're talking about armies here. Now, these are not big, big countries like America, that kind of thing. But they are city nations. These are four kings who came together, and they beat an army of five kings together. And Abram, when he hears about it, what does he do? He gets his servants, 318 of them, and he goes after them. There's no waiting. There's no hesitation. He moves to save Lot. I mean, again, another side note. Has Lot really been anything of a help to Abram so far? <laughs> no. Lot is like that family member that's like just causing trouble every time they're around. Always trouble. But does Abram care? No. He's part of his family, and he's part of what God has given him, and so he goes after him. Abram clearly cares and values his nephew. And especially in that day, family ties and relations were even more important than today. Because that's all you had. So Abram gathers his servants, 318 men, and to pursue these four kings and their armies, demonstrating his loyalty and bravery. But this seems a little foolish. I don't know if I would recommend taking your 300 servants who probably worked in the fields and worked cattle. I mean, I'm sure they were tough guys. They were hard workers, but these were not professional soldiers. I don't know if I'd recommend taking 300 guys against a coalition of four kings with their armies. Yet what does Abram do? He goes after them. And he finds them here in the Jordan Valley. And what happens? Abram conquers all of these combined armies. He, it says he strategically divides his men at nighttime. He splits them up, and he doesn't tell us exactly, but he probably pincered them or did something with his two groups at nighttime, and they're so afraid that they rout, they're routed and they ran. Almost miraculously, this works somehow. Abram dramatically succeeds. Abram is like, wow, that's incredible. Abram's like, you know, Alexander the Great. He's like Napoleon, you know. Uh, man, I just lost the guy from uh, Empiric Wars, but I can't remember his name, with the elephants. Hannibal. He's like Hannibal, okay? He's like these great generals succeeding in the face of all odds amazingly almost miraculously, an incredible victory. And he returns as the conquering hero with Lot and his household and the people of Sodom and the treasures and plunder from the cities of Jordan. And you might be reading this story and you say, wow, that's a cool story. That's not really the point of what's going on here. It's almost background. Lot, Abram comes and almost just as an aside, oh, of course he wins. And he brings back Lot and all the people and goods of Sodom with them. But then he is met by two different kings in the next set of verses. Two kings and two claims. Look at verse 17. 
And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedolomar and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be God, Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, the people, and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten in the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshtol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. There's two kings that show up, two kings in contrast. One, the king of Sodom, is expected, right? What just happened to Sodom? All his stuff was taken, all his people were captured, and Abram brings them all back. So we're like, oh, king of Sodom, of course you're there. <laughs> you show up and you say, hey, Abram, thanks. This is awesome, and let me give you something. But there's a second king who shows up, and I got to tell you, one of the most random appearances in all the Bible. I don't mean random in the sense that random that God didn't know about it. Random narratively, right? You're like, oh, king of Sodom, okay. And then there's like Melchizedek, king of Salem. Who's that guy? Was his city part of this whole battle? No, okay. Who is this guy? His name's Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. Where's he from? We don't know. Who's he related to? We don't know. Who are his mother and father? We don't know. Have you noticed in Genesis there's a lot of genealogies? A lot of like this person begat this person begat this person. Be up for Melchizedek? Nothing. He's just there. And he shows up, and not only does he just show up, he's a priest of the God most high. And he offers something to Abram. The king of Sodom says, hey, just give me my people back, and you can have everything else that you, you rescued. And Melchizedek shows up and says, hey, I have an offer for you. Here's a meal of bread and wine, and here's a blessing from God. A little bit unexpected. This king, Melchizedek, captured a, has captured throughout history a lot of people's imaginations. He captured the imagination of David in Psalm 10. That's the only other time this person appears in the Old Testament. He appears here in this story, and then in Psalm 10, in one verse, David mentions Melchizedek. We don't know his, like I said, we don't know his lineage, his background, or his future. He appears in the story without beginning. It's seemingly in the story without beginning, without end. He appears, and he's gone. His name is very interesting, too. His name, Melchizedek, is literally two words put together, king of righteousness. Melek is king, Sedek, righteousness, Melchizedek king of righteousness. And he's also the king of a city named Salem. If you ever heard the word shalom, you can hear the similarity. It's the king of the city named peace. So here's this strange person who appears as the king of righteousness and the king of peace, who is a priest of God. And there's a lot of ideas about this. Jewish traditions, some a lot said that he might have been Shem, the last survivor of the pre-flood world. For various reasons, I don't think that's uh, the best guess. Uh, other people have tried to come up with ideas of who he is. Other scholars have said, oh, maybe he was an angel. Maybe Michael, maybe Gabriel. Uh, many have even seen him as, oh, this was Jesus pre-incarnate. This was God the Son before he came to earth as a child. This is God appearing. Well, I suppose all these are possible. 
I think something more simple is going on here. Melchizedek, in my opinion, was a normal man. He was a Canaanite king over a city, probably the city that became Jerusalem, Jerusalem, same city, who had come to worship the one true God, the God Most High. You notice it doesn't say Yahweh. He might not even have known that name. The God Most High, the one true God. And he stood as a minister, as a representative, a priest for God. He is both a king and a priest combined, this king of righteousness ruling over the city named Peace. And this priest offers something to Abram. He doesn't offer earthly wealth, or a he offers simply a blessing. But these two kings represent something else. What do they represent? The king of Sodom comes to Abram and says, I can give you something. You get everything that you captured because you deserve it. And what does Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, say? I am offering you a blessing from God because it's really God who has accomplished this. And you'll notice, what does Abram do? He actually gives a gift to Melchizedek. So the king of Sodom says, Abram, you can have all of the stuff, everything you earned, everything you deserved. And yet Melchizedek says, here, I will give you a blessing, and actually, I'm going to take a gift from you. Okay, what's going on here? They, these two kings really represent the, the, question, the answer to the question, whose victory is it? Whose victory is it? If you read the story up till now, you would have assumed who accomplished this amazing feat, this mastery, this strategic mastery, this incredible victory in battle. Well, it's Abram, right? That's the guy who did it. So who deserves a reward? Who deserves honor for this? Who deserves glory for this? Who deserves to have the riches and the treasure? The guy who accomplished it, Abram. And that's what the king of Sodom, representative of the world, of the wicked nations around them, says, yeah, Abram, that's what you deserve. But Abram recognized something different. Notice here in verse 19, Melchizedek comes with bread and wine, he's a priest of the Most High, and he says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. What is Melchizedek saying to Abram? You are not the, you're not the ultimate source of victory here. You had victory because God delivered these kings into your hand. That's the answer to this question. There's two kings, and they're making two different claims. One is Abram. You won. You deserve everything. The other is God is the victor. God deserves honor and wealth and riches and praise for this. And as I mentioned before in my other sermons, remember, who was this written for? This is a history of true narrative. It's really happened, of true history. But it was not written in this time. It was written four or five hundred years later for the nation of Israel after they had been brought out of Egypt, you know, the ten plagues. Uh, if you, like, I just think of Prince of Egypt because it's got the great song. Deliver us. Okay, it's a great song. Great music in there. But Israel's brought out of Egypt, right? The ten plagues. All you kids who've been in children's church, we've talked about the ten plagues, right? All the crazy things that God did to bring Israel out. And now they're getting to know God. God says, you're going to be my people. You're going to follow me. You're going to walk with me. And they need to know what that means. And God says, let me tell you a story from your past that you've forgotten to show you who I am 
and what you should do. And what is the lesson that Israel needed to learn? They needed to learn that God was the one who would win their battles for them. God was the source of their victory. God was the source of success. God was their source of blessing. It was not their own strength, but God's that prevailed. And that's a theme throughout all of the Old Testament. Think about the ten plagues. What did the Israelites do to conquer Egypt? Nothing. God did it. Think about the Red Sea. What did Israel do to escape the Egyptian army through the Red Sea? They just walked through when God did it, when he split the waters. Remember, think about when they came to the land of Canaan again. Remember, what has God promised Abram? Your descendants will inherit all the land that you can see. And they've been in Egypt 400 years, and God brings them back to the land of Canaan and says, this is your chance. This is my promise. Go into the land. Take it. I've been holding this for you. It's yours for the taking. And the first time they come to it, what do they do? They say, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. Ten of them were bad, and two were good. They sent spies into the land, and what did the men see? They saw, oh, man, look, at there's grapes, big, you know, big clusters of grapes. You can't even carry them. There's, there's wealth. There's blessing. Everything is as we've heard. But there's giants in there. And what did they do? They were afraid, and they said, even though God has told us that he will win for us, even though God has promised that this is ours, that we can take it, we can't do this. What did they not realize? It was God who would win that battle anyways. And what did they do? They said, no, God, we won't go in. And God said, okay, because you won't go in, you're going to wander 40 years in the wilderness, and all of you over 20 will die, except for Caleb and Joshua. And then they said, oh, God, just kidding. Can we go in now? And they tried to go in against God's command, and they were routed, and they were killed. This is what they needed to know, that God was the one who won the true victory for them. In fact, throughout the history of Israel, God put them in ridiculous circumstances just to prove that it was him, not them. Remember Jericho? What did they do at Jericho when they actually did go into the land of Canaan? God said, hey, take the Ark of the Covenant and take some trumpets and march around the city for seven days. You're like these big walls. You're like, what's that going to do? At the end of the at the end of the seven days, you're going to shout and all the walls will fall down. Is that a great strategic plan? Like, yeah, great battle plan, God. That's a great one. I mean, they must have had really strong voices. And yet, what happens? They march around for seven days, and on the seventh day, they go around seven times and they blow the trumpets and they shout. And what happens? The walls fall down. That's right. The walls fall down. That's good. I'm glad you know that story. And what, does it, what did it show them? It wasn't in their strength anyways. It was God. This story should remind us of another story from the Old Testament. Can you think of another story in the Old Testament where there were 300 guys and they divided their forces and surrounded a much bigger army at night and that everybody, the army, other army fled? You read the story of Gideon? It, did Gideon start with 300 guys? No. It actually started with over 32,000 men in their army. And God said, that's too many. <laughs> you ever heard a, a, a general say that? Hey, we're going to battle. We have two, our army's too big. We've got to cut it down. Especially not back then. And what does God say, though? Get rid of all these men. And he takes it from 32,000 down to 300 guys. And why does he do that? Judges 7.2 says, And the Lord said to Gideon, These people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel claim glory for itself 
against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. What happened with David and Goliath? That well-known story? You, you kids know this story, right? David and Goliath. What, who was Goliath? A giant, right? Everybody was afraid of him. Saul was like, I can't, I can't do it. It's too scary. Yet David, the young shepherd, not a boy, but a young shepherd, said, I will go. And did he go with swords and armor and all this strength? No, he said, I'm taking my staff and my sling. Yet what did David say when he went up to Goliath? Then in 1 Samuel 17, 47, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. And what happens? God gave David the victory, right? Throw the sling, you know, the stone, right to his head, and, he's, and Goliath is killed. Think about the kings in God's law. What did God command for Israel's kings when they would come later on? He told them, don't multiply horses, don't multiply wives, meaning treaties with other nations. Don't multiply gold for yourself. Why? So he would not trust in his own strength or riches or have his heart turned away from God. That's in Deuteronomy 17. And what does Psalm 20, verse 7 say? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Again, is that a great strategy? Do you think that would be a great strategy for our country? Hey, guys, we're going to intentionally get rid of all of our army because that will protect us the best. But that's what God told the Israelites to do, to prove to them it is not in your strength, it is my strength. God regularly, intentionally put Israel into a position of weakness to prove that it was only God's strength that brought victory. I really appreciated Brother Jeremy's message this morning because it was right at this point. As 2 Corinthians 12 says, Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is what God was trying to teach Israel with this story. Abram has this great victory, but it's not Abram's victory. It's God. And you know what Israel never did? They never learned this lesson. They never did. What did they do? They routinely trusted in their own strength and failed to recognize that it was God who won their battles for them. What did the kings of Israel do, even the best ones, David and Solomon? They multiplied their own armies. They multiplied wives with treaties, and they multiplied their own wealth against God's command. And let's think forward, even to the days of Jesus. When Jesus comes to Israel, or hundreds of years later, from here, thousands. From this story, thousands of years later, Jesus comes. And they're not worshiping. The Israelites are not worshiping other gods. They're not doing any of that anymore. But what's the biggest problem with the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when Jesus comes to them? They believe that it was even their own spiritual success that would bring salvation for them. They believed that keeping their own version of the law, they could earn entrance into God's kingdom. And what was the message God had for them through Jesus? Repent. Submit to God. Recognize that it is only God's grace that grants eternal life and salvation. God is even the one who accomplishes victory over sin and death. God is the one who accomplishes success and brings salvation. We looked at today that resting in God as our salvation. God is the source and provider of spiritual salvation as much, if not even more, than he was of this victory for Abram and for the Israelites from Egypt and from the bondage of slavery. And Abram recognized this. Abram recognized God's grace and rejected the flattery of Sodom. Remember, Sodom says, hey, Abram, you deserve all this because you've won this victory. Melchizedek says, here's a blessing from God. 
which demands worship and honor back. And which one does Abram listen to? Which one does Abram take? He listens to the priest of the God Most High. When, when Melchizedek says, it is blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It's God who did this. Abram says, you are right. I will honor God by giving a tithe to you as his representative. Abram says, I don't deserve to receive. I need to give because it's God who has won this victory. And when the king of Sodom says, hey, have all this stuff, Abram says, I've taken an oath. I will have none of what you give me. <laughs> I, will get, I will have none of it. Not even a, a strap, a sandal strap, not even a thread. Because if I do, you will say, it's me who has made Abram rich. And who is it that's brought Abram wealth and blessing? Who, has, who is it that's given Abram success? God. Abram understood that it was God who brought the victory, so he tithed to God's priest from everything he had. God demands total submission and worship, right? Notice he, Abram tithed in verse 20, 21, 20, then 20. Abram tithed, gave him a tithe of everything he had. And what does God want? All of us. The greatest command in the law, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Abram rejected the flattery of the world. The gift of Sodom claimed to exalt Abram. Hey, Abram, you're such a great victory. Here, take all this stuff that you deserve. But we know what would it have resulted in. What did it result in for Lot? Destruction. The world promises a gift to you that you deserve, but it only really ends up with destruction. So what must we do? You must recognize God as your source of salvation. Trust only in him. The world will flatter you and prop you up as your own savior. The human heart, naturally, what do we do? We trust in ourselves. We glorify our own successes. Even in seeking salvation, we naturally want to do it in our own way. To many, it is offensive to say that you can do nothing to earn your salvation. Have you ever had someone be offended by that? They, you say, you can't do anything to earn your salvation. It's only by faith. And they say, no, they're offended. You say, why would you be offended? Because we want to trust in our own efforts. Because for me to recognize it's none of my effort is to admit that there's something wrong with me. To admit that I have to give up my own authority to somebody else. Faith is offensive to many, yet this is what God demands of you. Trusting in yourself only leads to death and destruction because you are incapable you are incapable of succeeding in your own strength. You are a sinner, spiritually dead, living in a spiritually dead and sinful world. Even your own righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags before God the Most High, the owner of heaven and earth. What would he want with our... <laughs> Even the best we could offer him is nothing. But God provides a way. God provides a substitute. Remember, it's God's victory. God provides victory through Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's only son who came to live as a human, to live the perfect life for you, to die the death that you deserve in your place, to rise again defeating death for you, and stand, standing before the throne of God in heaven interceding for you to receive all he has done for you. You must simply, tr you must simply give, give up any trust in your own works, you must recognize your own sinful failure, that's called repentance, 
And you must cling only to Christ for forgiveness and eternal life, and that's faith. I have an aside here about Melchizedek, and I know many of you might want to hear it, um, but it's kind of an aside, so I'm going to leave it. Okay? If you're interested, I will make these notes available. Because There's a lot of questions about Melchizedek, about who this guy is. Is he, is he Jesus? Is he a type of Christ? I will just note, uh, I have some information on that, but because of time, I'm going to continue. You can ask me afterwards, okay? Especially if you want to know about why he's talked about in Hebrews and what's the deal with him. I would love to talk with you about that. So first, you must recognize God as your source of salvation. But secondly, you must submit everything to him in worship. Perhaps you're a Christian here today. We even can buy into the lies of the world that set us up as our own savior and king. Say, hey, you deserve it. You're the most important. You're the person who deserves everything, to receive everything you want. The world, Satan, and, our, and the wicked humanity around us flatter anyone who will listen. They will tell you that, quote, you are the king. You are the source of your own triumph. You are great. You are mighty. You deserve to receive riches and power and honor and glory. You should be the recipient of everything you deserve. And just like that king of Sodom, still today the world says, hey, look at all the awesome things you have accomplished. Here, take what's rightfully yours. But God says that he is the king. God says that he owns all of heaven and earth. Everything, including you and I, belong to him. If you have victory, if you have success, if you have blessing in your life, it proceeds from him. He has granted you what you own, what you have, what you've accomplished. He provides blessing and victory, and he alone to deserves to receive all honor and glory and praise. And in fact, if you recognize God's almighty power and grace in your life, recognition of that invites you to give back to him everything that he has given to us. Worldly selfishness enthrones myself and demands to receive reward, but faith recognizes God as the true king and submits everything to him. We are often like Abram here with a choice. Do we receive what the world says is rightfully ours, just take it because we deserve it, or do we choose to give away that which we feel like is ours? because God deserves it. Abram rejects the wealth of Sodom and gives away what he had, but notice, what is God's response? Abram, instead of taking, gives here in this moment of victory. But what does God say in just the beginning of chapter 15? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Yeah, it may feel like we're giving away, but really we're choosing between two rewards. We either take the rewards of the world, of Sodom, or we take the reward that is God himself. God demands that you give up all of who you are. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must love your neighbor of yourself, as Jesus said, the two greatest commandments. You must offer yourself as a complete sacrifice and offering to God, Romans 12. You must give God everything you are and have, but in return you will receive God himself as your reward. So, is there anything today that you have held back from God? Have you given your heart to him? Your desires, your hopes, your dreams to God? Your plans? Have you given your soul and mind, your most important priorities, 
to him? Have you given your strength to God, your time, your abilities, your skills? Does God have all of you today? Are you willing to love your enemies just as Jesus did? Are you willing to take your cross and die to your own will and desires as Jesus did for us? Are you willing to spend your life as a nomad and a pilgrim? Did Abram ever live in a house settled? No. What does Jesus say about himself? Even the Son of God says, even the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. Birds of the air have a nest. Foxes have holes in the ground. But even Jesus did not have a home because of the will, following the will of God. Are we willing to spend our lives like that? Are you willing to give everything to God? Are you willing to receive the greatest reward, God himself, in fellowship with him? Or will we throw away the reward of God for the temporary rewards of this world that will decay and rust and fall apart and an eternity mean nothing? What are the greatest rewards of this life? Perhaps you could say gold, riches. When you get to heaven, what is that? Just the paving stones. <laughs> it's like nothing. But if we give to God, if we submit to him, if we recognize God as our only source of true salvation and blessing in this life, and we give back to him, we receive in return something far greater, an infinite fellowship with, or fellowship with an infinite, holy, eternal God forever. Lastly, here in our church, in Crosser Baptist Church, we must remember that it is God who grants success. It is not our work. It is not our efforts. It is not our programs that grow a church or make disciples. You know, we did all this. We put up all this. And I appreciate every single person who came, especially those who stuck it out, to work on all this. This is amazing. A lot of work. And we have hundred-some kids that might come to our VBS and hear the gospel. And we hope for fruit from that. But this work is not putting up decorations, even planning lessons, even me and my efforts to prepare and preach today. This is not what brings success, ultimately. It may be a tool that God uses, but who is it that does the work? It's God. Zechariah 4, verse 6 says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, to a king later on in Israel's history. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Even in our ministry, even in your life, even in your family, it is not you who brings success and victory. It is God. And if we have any measure of success, of blessing, of victory in this life, even salvation ultimately, you must recognize that it is God alone who brings that. And to say, it's mine, I've accomplished this, is to blaspheme the one who did it. Do, let, let's not be like Israel. Israel never learned this lesson throughout all of their history. They always trusted in themselves. They always trusted in their own strength in the end. They wanted to make alliances to make sure they were safe, even when God told them not to. David takes a census to find out how big his country is so he could boast in how awesome his Israel is. Brings destruction. You must recognize that God is the only source of salvation, and you must submit everything to him in worship. Let's pray.